you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. As the mist leaves no scar on the dark green hill, so my body leaves no scar on you and never will. Through windows in the dark, the children came, the children go, like arrows with no target, like shackles made of snow. True love leaves no traces if you and I are one. It's lost in our embraces like stars against the sun. You are listening to True Love Leaves No Traces by Leonard Cohen. In today's episode, I talked with Dr. Taufik Jordar about the policy questions of public health and healthcare AI the role it has to play in the global health context. Welcome to the fifth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I'm your host, Anirban. It's a really sunny day here in Darmstadt, Germany, and I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation with our guest for today, uh, Taufik Jordar. So Taufik is the Vice Chairperson of Public Health Foundation in Bangladesh. And he wears many hats. Some of it includes the academic researcher hat. He teaches courses, is also an international consultant for World Health Organization. And he is also associate faculty of many universities. So we will hear more about those affiliations and how things are going on around Taufik's career. But his main focus is basically public health, global health, and the health policy. So today we will discuss about the value proposal of AI in public health, as well as the policy decisions that are necessary for AI-ready healthcare in the global health context. But for now, welcome to the podcast, Tofik. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Anirban. It's really a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak in your podcast. Actually, I'm a, a fan of many of your podcasts. It's, uh, I listened to some of them uh, previously. These are very amazing. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining and being so kind at, about the podcast. It's really uh, something we, it, it's in its early career, let's say, of its own. It is. Uh, it is. <laughs> but uh, when we are talking about our podcast, the sort of tradition is always about starting with the becoming question of the of our guests so how were your earlier years how did you develop into the multifaceted researcher that you currently are thank you uh, Nibran. actually uh, 
I was a medical doctor. I graduated from um, medical school in northern part of Bangladesh, far away from Dhaka, where I actually grew up. Uh, while I was working there, when I was actually in third year of my medical school, we had a residential field site training. It's a, it's a part of the training as part of the community medicine subject. So we went to the field and we, are so, we were supposed to actually take interviews, um, learn how to do the interviews, develop the questionnaire, doing the interviews, etc. And uh, the northern part of Bangladesh has uh, some problems. For example, uh, they have iodine deficiency. As a result, they have uh, goiter problems. So we promote iodized salt intake. We also promote water and sanitation. So when I went there, it was actually one of my first interactions with the real rural community of Bangladesh. I went to the villages in Bangladesh, but I really didn't stay there for long. I live in Dhaka, which is a, uh, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a metropolis. So I didn't know how their life was. So when I asked them, I mean, do you take an iodized salt to a lady? I mean, he was just cooking, holding her baby in her lap. I asked, uh, do you take iodized salt? She said that, okay, you know, I mean, buying an iodized salt package will cost extra five taka, which will translate into perhaps 50 taka at the end of the month, which is perhaps my two days meal cost for whole family. So I rather take non-iodized salt than going unfed for two days with all my family. When I asked a farmer who was working in his field nearby whether he uses sanitary latrine, he dragged me by my hand, took me to his small hut and said, this is all I got from my ancestors. This is all I got in my um, I mean, property. I don't, I mean, do you want me to build a sanitary latrine inside my home? This is all I have. It's a small place. I realize that it's not just about telling people to do things. I mean, giving clinical prescriptions. It's much more than that. You need to actually think of the social determinants of health, the determinants that basically um, make you healthy or unhealthy, which determines your choices, which determine your priorities in your life, you know? So just telling people to buy medicines and take them is not, I mean, this is what we see from outside, but they have more stories in their life. And I mean, as soon as I um, kind of realized the back stories of the health interventions or the health related interactions in our lives, I could not stay in clinical medicine anymore. And I chose to become a public health professional instead, you know, and that's how, uh, I mean, when I graduated, I did a master's in public health from Brack University. Then after working as a faculty at the same institute for two years, I did my doctorate in public health, DRPH from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Department of International Health, uh, focusing on uh, health policy and health systems and human resources for health, health workforce. Then I returned to Bangladesh in 2015, again joined as a faculty, started working, doing implementation research, policy research, evaluation of public health interventions, etc. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, then the career took different turns. Um, I joined an implementation research project as a uh, research director of USAID run uh, implementation research project on childhood nutrition. Uh, then in 2020, I joined as a consultant for the WHO for their work on universal health coverage. And now is uh, now that it's, it's actually ending, I'm actually moving to newer ventures, basically. I mean, perhaps I'm going to join another university in Southeast Asia region outside Bangladesh. This is going to be my first truly international job, so a little bit excited about that. But since I haven't joined yet, um, I, I'm not comfortable <laughs> disclosing too much about it, perhaps later. 
Of course. But this is really, really uh, uh, quite evident from, I guess, talking to many of our uh, guests here. And so is you that how intense the human story of the healthcare is. And every time you get involved with human, how really your perspective changes. It is nothing like the theory or the practice in a very highly developed clinical environment is the humans that determines how you will basically get into. So just before I go into my sort of next questions, the probing question about what you just said about your experience, just for our international audience, you mentioned 50 taka for an entire month. Can you just convert it in, in I don't know, euro or dollar, what we are talking about by that? Uh, it's basically half a euro, you know, 50 taka is half a euro. Um, and uh, w- what I'm talking about um, is from perhaps 2002, three. So it's almost 20 years back. So definitely takes more. Um, the cost is actually more, I mean, food cost uh, grew, uh, grew up um, exponentially over the last couple of decades, obviously. But uh, yeah, it was the case back in 2003-ish. I see. But it's, so, it's, yeah, it's a half a dollar. I mean, perhaps it's now two, dollar, two, two, two euros. And with two euros, you can actually have uh, your full family's meal for a couple of days. I see. I see. So just to be very clear about the basic society and the earnings that they have to understand what, what sort of health policy intervention that we'll be talking about next. All right. And then basically you have focused on Bangladesh. You have done all your research and practices with a focus on the public health of Bangladesh. But that's not very easy for our uh, global audience to understand. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about the typical healthcare infrastructure and the primary care versus the tertiary care and the practices, the general practices in Bangladesh, that would be a great start. Um, All right. So the healthcare of Bangladesh is basically divided into three tiers. One is the primary healthcare, then the secondary healthcare, then the tertiary healthcare. So the primary healthcare is basically, um, it has two sub-layers, actually, two or three sub-layers. One is the community-based services. Then we have the union sub-centers, which cover around 20,000 population. Um, then we have the Upazila health complex or sub-district level health, uh, health complexes or health centers which are very basic health centers providing primary level care, some very simple type of surgeries. I mean, not in all of them, but those which have operation theaters and equipments, of course. Uh, then we have the tertiary level health care, which is basically uh, located in the districts. We have 64 districts. So they, these hospitals actually have, of course, a larger uh, human resource base. It, has, um, it covers a larger population and catchment area. They usually have surgical facilities, some preventive services, etc. And the tertiary care is, of course, mostly based in uh, the divisional cities, large cities and Dhaka, which provide specialized care. For example, kidney hospital, then ophthalmology hospital, things like that, or neurological hospitals, etc. Unfortunately, the problem in Bangladesh is that our healthcare is very much clinically oriented. I mean, it doesn't have, I mean, if you want to get into the government health service, you must be a doctor. I mean, even if you have a doctorate in public health, it's not really recognized as a qualification there. I mean, you must be able to, uh, to 
clinically um, diagnose and treat a patient, and that's the only qualification you have. So on the surface, you won't see the problem. But you know, a lot of work that health systems do are basically management, right? Management-oriented work or uh, health systems-related work, policy-related work, uh, public health preventive work, right? Prevention-oriented work. So who is going to do that? Basically, we um, ask these doctors, the untrained doctors, the doctors who are basically trained in clinical services with a very few to no training at all in public health or preventive aspects, we ask them to do surveillance or outbreak investigation, which they're not even trained in, you know. These are necessary things, but we don't recruit the appropriate human resources for that. And that creates a huge gap in the preventive services, especially in the rural areas. In urban areas, perhaps you have some alternatives to take care of that. But unfortunately, urban areas also like uh, it has different stories. It's a different thing. I'm not going into that even. But the dichotomy between the clinical and non-clinical uh, public health work is actually a big problem. And the mindset is, is starting to change after the COVID-19 because now it, it became very evident that you cannot really uh, manage a pandemic without a preventive or public health approach. Now it is becoming convincing to the policymakers. But otherwise, even a couple of years back, nobody would even understand what public health is and how it is needed. What is health system? Why it is needed? Everything was very much clinical oriented, as if a few months ago, I mean, there was a debate in Bangladesh whether uh, to open the uh, schools or not. Bangladesh was one of the countries keeping the schools closed for longest time, actually. So there was a debate whether we need to open it or not. And the journalists were rushing to the a medicine specialist. But this decision cannot be given by a medicine specialist. You need a medical sociologist, for example, <laughs> to tell that the sociological aspect of not having education, not staying out of education, uh, impact of not going to the high school on the children, the tensions that may arise, the future implications of not going to the schools. These are not really a doctor's cup of tea, right? Uh, <laughs> but that perception is very much missing here. So that's the challenge. Yeah, I guess you have made a very important point already that often the questions about health policy, the policy impact, the risk versus reward scenarios, these need a totally different of way of thinking about it, mindset, training, than what uh, you often get trained in your medical schools, right? So medical schools only or mostly care about what happens inside your clinic. After the patient get, came in yeah. and moved out, that's, that's where it sort of ended. This is really an important thing. And I guess, as you said, the COVID-19 pandemic really showed that if you don't have a lot of trained professionals who can assess such things, uh, uh, can think about the societal benefits, harms, etc., that, that would make a lot of problems there. I mean, totally, I understand. And I guess it's not just Bangladesh, but quite a lot of South East Asian countries have similar uh, situations, I can imagine. Yeah, so the, the, the first question I have or the follow-up of what you said about the infrastructure would be about the technology. So can you tell us a little bit more about the digitization level at these primary cares versus tertiary cares mm -hmm. or even the sort of imaging technologies that is being often uh, employed there? So a general aspects of this. Sure. So, uh, you know, I mean, when this current government came to power, they had a slogan, I mean, a 
uh, a popular slogan uh, as part of their election campaign that's we will build a digital bangladesh so digital big bangladesh became synonymous to this government's pledge and it was reflected in the health sector uh, to some extent too they uh, introduced the uh, district health information system uh, they improved the websites i mean the websites are much updated than before like um, uh, before 10 years you wouldn't really see updated information the websites but now you have all of these things but still we have uh, limitations limitations in terms of the electronic health record still uh, we don't have any electronic health record in the government system government is trying uh, on, a, on a pilot basis in some uh, upazilas but it's still uh, it's not the uh, mainstream the electronic records for not just electronic health records we don't have a good vital registration system or a record of the uh, vital information of the um, uh, of at the population level those things are very much missing another problem is actually the lack of transparency in in the, in the decision making processes we don't have uh, very, i mean uh, but, but you know one thing happened during the covid-19 is that we started uh, doing a lot of telemedicine services so bangladesh has a critical shortage of human resources in 2006 bangladesh was identified as one of the 57 countries uh, with the critical shortage of human resources for example in the world you need i mean if i mean according to the world health organization's global health workforce strategy 2030 you need four or five health workers per uh, 1000 population i mean health worker they mean doctors nurses and uh, uh, and the midwives while bangladesh has only 1.16 uh, which is less than one i mean one fourth of or almost one fourth of actually what is required you know so uh, human resources missing so in such a context you you can actually take advantage of technology telemedicine services and many other services that can come into your use in sort of mending some of these uh, these gaps then uh, we found that in a study that i was a part of i actually led that study we found that the nurses do 50% of the uh, 50% of their time actually they do non nursing work that is administrative work uh, writing uh, staffs keeping records of staffs etc so many of these things can be done by uh, digital technology or um, artificial intelligence you don't need a person to do this tick marks uh, on a uh, on a paper based system you know those can be digitized so bangladesh actually has come a long way but still there are gaps a lot of things can be done where ai or different digital technologies come handy in resolving some of these health system problems yeah thank you so much i i guess when we talk about digitization we often forget that it's often even something as simple as a website if that doesn't update often like that's a very different way of thinking about digitization that that immediately came when you talked to me because before that to me digitization was starting at the electronic health records and etc and how we connected with the banks and whatever but this is a very different uh, uh, reality of course that's that's a really good point I just want to add another thing I mean you know the health, I mean when we discuss about the health system we try to break it down into uh, smaller building blocks such as health service health workforce health information system health products and medicines health financing health governance and in each of these building blocks technology can actually play a vital role you know but our 
tendency, I mean, those who think about the digitization, who think about AI, their focus is more on the health service part of it only, you know, but there are other aspects of health systems which can be benefited from technology, especially the AI. So those issues need to come into the discussion more and more. This is a very important point you are making, Taufik. So I guess one follow-up question here would be, if you think about where, uh, let's say, in, in somewhere like in Bangladesh, where AI can bring most value beyond the services, which one you choose or one or maybe two of the top priorities from your mindset, from your understanding? Mm, there are many, actually, you know. Since my focus is uh, very much on uh, human resources, I would start with the human resources first. So workload management is an important aspect of um, of human resource management. I mean, uh, for example, you have uh, certain hospitals or health centers, and you assign the same number of workers in each of them, which is a typical practice in Bangladesh and many, many other countries. Uh, so for example, if you go to a typical uh, Upazila Health Complex in Bangladesh, a sub-district level hospital. They have, for example, 14 doctors, 23 nurses, etc. And it's not really informed by the local evidence. So this is something that they, they do a top-down decision for budgeting purpose, and they just allocate those a certain number of doctors and nurses and midwives to those health facilities. But all these health facilities are different in many aspects. Their disease pattern, their epidemiological pattern, the demography, the geography, all of these aspects are very different in different upazilas. So they need a very different types of health workforce planning. In some hospitals, which are very close to highways, perhaps, you need an orthopedic surgeon, for example, which you, you may not need in another upazila health complex where malaria is more prevalent. You need someone trained in malaria, for example. Now, how you decide how many doctors you need, how many nurses you need, and there are um, approaches which is called workload indicator of staffing need uh, developed by WHO. And that uh, is a tool. It's, a, it's a basically, uh, you, can, you, you can call it a web-based tool. You give some inputs like how many patients you had last year in different times of the year, different months of the year, what type of patients you had last year. So based on that, they can actually tell you how many doctors you need, how many nurses you need, how many uh, consultants you need, how many medical technologies you need, etc. So that can be very easily integrated with the district health information system, which, which we already have. And that can give you the exact number of the doctors or nurses or other health workers that you need in your health facilities instead of like a top-down approach. So this is just coming readily uh, in my mind when I think of uh, decision-making, public health decision-making. Another thing is like, uh, you know, uh, we call it task shifting. We usually engage highly qualified doctors to do certain things, uh, but perhaps we don't need them. For example, if you want to perform a circumcision, it's commonly done, it's a Muslim majority country, but apart from that, it's an intervention to prevent HIV-AIDS too. It's a, it's a WHO-recommended intervention. But for that, you don't need a very highly qualified surgeon if you can train a lower-trained health workers. You can assign some of your work that you do in the health facilities to the community health workers. You train them, they will go with a checklist or just like a, a clinical algorithm, and they can do it themselves. And you simply give them a mobile-based algorithm in their hand. They, they simply press a button or they just select yes, no, does the patient have uh, fever? Yes, no. Does the patient have some secretions? 
etc and it will give you is called syndromic management they, they, they will give you a syndrome because you don't need to pinpoint the exact microorganism to be able to diagnose that patient or treat that patient all you need is to identify whether it is a viral disease is a bacterial disease if it is a bacterial disease you just go ahead with some uh, broad spectrum antibiotic or uh, if it is not then you don't need to give up antibiotic to prevent antimicrobial resistance that's all you need you don't need a big degree for that and digital technologies can help you to uh, to reach those algorithm based uh, decisions quite easily then you can decide on the doctors you know rural retention is a big problem in bangladesh and many low income countries doctors don't uh, stay in the rural areas they don't want to stay but research and evidence from many many countries have shown that uh, if the doctors have certain characteristics they are more likely to stay in rural areas for example if they themselves are from rural background if they are trained in a in a rural based medical school something like that so if you cannot decide uh, whether to assign or appoint a doctor to a rural position you can take advantage of digital technology which is already fed with this information which can tell you okay instead of doctor a if you assign doctor be to that position he or she is more likely to stay so these are maybe it sounds too futuristic but these are some of the things that that can be done or perhaps uh, at least we can try uh, these things um, uh, doing then we can apply blockchain based inventory management inventory management is a big challenge we can use the blockchain based technology then for antimicrobial resistance we can take advantage of some of the technologies for example we can predict which type of anti um, which type of uh, microorganisms are going to take hold in certain area uh, how they are going to behave in next few months and then we can actually decide which types of antibiotics should be uh, supplied to that particular area we can predict the strains of different microorganisms and circulating microorganisms and tweak the vaccines according to them this is being done in in the usa they just change the characteristics of their influenza vaccines every year based on the prediction or modeling they do on the circulating microorganisms we have seen in in covid-19 too different strains of covid-19 is um, are coming i mean delta uh, omicron etc so if we could predict these characteristics from before and design our vaccines against them we could actually have a better protection against them so these are some of the things that are readily coming to my mind of course there are many other things that can be done but these are some of the preventive or public health sort of things or management sort of things that ai can help us in um, making decisions about about prevention and that's really a great summary you just made topic and i guess this is really a like top of the iceberg kind of summary and this already shows that there are multifaceted problems beyond the kind of problems that we often associate with ai and healthcare and it's really also fascinating to hear that how let's say the difficulty levels of these problems are quite different right so at least from a technology point of view there are certain problems which are far easier to deal with than the others but really the the potential impact at the ground level of healthcare that we are talking about it's, it's it it has nothing to do with the technological challenge so that was really i guess a uh, sort of takeaway message for all our listeners who are listening to uh, your podcast today so that's really really important but coming back to the first thing that you mentioned which is about this critical shortage of uh, healthcare personnel right and then that's almost 4 to 1 
and often the the problem is that the the, the allocation is not really informed etc and there we can talk about the allocation of these persons in a more let's say informed way with the ai level but i just wanted to ask a sort of other side of the question so those of these healthcare professionals who are being allocated already in these jobs how often uh, digital technology is available to them and how often they actually take inspiration from these while they are treating patients is it common or is it not really the case is very common even uh, a study conducted among the the rural population and by rural i mean not just geographically rural uh, economically disadvantaged too we found that 80% of the low income population people have mobile phones on them you know um, now if you think of the group that we are talking about uh, the doctors or um, clinic managers district managers health managers etc 100% of them uh, have access to uh, mobile phones with um, internet you know so definitely there i mean we can take advantage of that we can use that is is very much accessible internet is actually available everywhere so it's not really a problem in bangladesh anymore perhaps 10 years ago i wouldn't say that but now is is quite available yeah that's also something that i often think about it's just that uh, uh, the 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 access to healthcare is of course a much bigger challenge than health access to technology technology is almost pervasive in in our parts of the of the world at least by that i mean india bangladesh etc of course in germany is the same thing but the world there is is a very different world but if the technology is there i can always imagine that at least the basic levels of screening diagnosis that should not be so difficult to access uh, if we are really using using uh, the technology to our advantage because these are people who already know how to i don't know play with tiktok and facebook and what not in their in their mobile phones so, uh, they are really take ready people at least the younger generation to actually use healthcare and get benefit from it so can you maybe tell i guess three main policy interventions that need to happen to make sure that access to healthcare is is becoming more pervasive in in these regions sure i mean first thing is that you know again it kind of boils down to the health workforce issue so as much as it is true that they have mobile phones it's also true that they're not really uh, they have the digital literacy as um much you know they know how to perhaps play with their mobile phones or take um uh, photos selfies with their mobile phones but they're not really uh, trained in using it for health or clinical purpose yet you know so developing an education which is conducive uh, to building up their digital literacy or technology literacy is very important so our medical schools now teach how to perform a surgery for example but Uh, how can we integrate that anatomical knowledge with for example a robotic surgery for the future how can we use uh, technology in in reaching a clinical decision uh, in the future so these are the things that we need to actually think about we need to revise and update our medical curriculum 
uh, public health curriculum and all the health uh, professional curriculum in general for the future uh, and make them more adaptable to the coming up to upcoming technologies you know so this is the first policy uh, recommendation that i have to update the educations of the human resources for the future secondly an important aspect is actually the lack of regulation so we again i mean uh, many doctors in bangladesh uh, not just doctors i mean all health professionals need to take a license for practice we call it bangladesh medical and dental council uh, license or bmdc license if you go to usa you you do usml and you get a license you go to other countries they have their own licensing mechanism so bangladesh also has a licensing mechanism like most other countries but it is based on a curriculum which does not recognize the digital or digital technologies so for example it says uh, for example the curriculum of the medical school says that you need to touch the patient do this and that which require uh, you to actually be in front of the patient to do those things but what happens if a patient is far away from you and you are basically consulting the patient use, using a digital device is it really acceptable what if something happens to that patient the patient dies or some harm happens to that patient will that give protection to the doctor how will the patient uh, take hold the doctors accountable for uh, for that do we have that type of conversation do we have that type of uh, information or uh, regulation integrated in our existing regulatory mechanism or not so we need to update our regulation for the digital technologies so these are two of the policy options or policies sort of um, regulations that i can think of and thirdly i think we need to actually think about the ethical aspects of it so for example the newer digital technologies will definitely come up in bangladesh and like many other countries so how will we uh, so for example fda in usa recently a few years ago integrated their digital evaluation and digital validation uh approaches in their technologies because many of these digital many of these technologies that they evaluate nowadays are um ai based technologies but the people who review them are not trained were not trained in those issues so we also need to think uh, about these things like director general of the drug administration which gives approval to different digital devices different technologies that are applied on the at the, uh, on the population level we need to update their um approval i mean update the knowledge of the people who give approval who review those technologies so these are some of uh, i mean the first few things that are coming to my mind from the policy perspective that uh, need to be uh, revised and updated in order to integrate the digital technologies in the country and mindful of the ethical issues of course perfect so if i try to summarize what you just said the first thing is about updating the curriculum so that people become more digitally literate to actually get the benefit of their mobile phone to healthcare the second point you talked about is the regulation again curriculum but more bringing those digital education in the telemedicine in the digital healthcare setting that we will more and more be involved in in the coming years decades and finally it's all about coming up with an updated ethical aspects when we are doing the approval stuff and approving digital technology which we might not even be aware of the shortcomings pitfalls etc so i guess these are all very difficult and very valid problems to deal with for the ethics researcher so in that way you definitely have a i i guess long time to think about this 
So I guess one follow-up question I had is sort of the, the reimbursement policy of, let's say, the AI products or the other digital products, I guess. So far, it's uh, non-existent in Bangladesh. But how do you see uh, reimbursement might benefit this digital transformation of healthcare? Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, most of uh, our health financing is mostly out-of-pocket based. We don't have a strong insurance mechanism yet. The government is actually doing some pilot projects in some parts of Bangladesh. So these issues have not come into the policy discussion yet in Bangladesh. But of course, the digital technologies can be very handy because if you have certain codes for certain diseases, those will decrease the workload tremendously. Those will help to reimburse uh, based on the diagnosis and the treatment very easily. Uh, so medical coding, all, all those things can be enormously benefited by um, the uh, upcoming digital technology. So since Bangladesh is moving towards that direction, I think this is a good thing to uh, keep in mind while developing it so that the integration, the digital integration is a part of the policy discussion. That's very important at this point. All right. So I guess this is really, this brings me towards the end of the sort of questions I had in mind for you. This is indeed very fascinating to think about how policy intervention is different between societies and between countries, of course. But I guess you are also involved in World Health Organization. And uh, in particular, I think you started about maybe less than two years ago. So during the pandemic. Uh, so I, my question really is that the, the, the entire understanding of World Health Organization and how it operates for the global health has probably shifted a lot during the pandemic and they are probably also taking digital health, AI, etc. Uh, into the consideration. So can you give us sort of your perspective of that, I don't know, two years journey so far? Yes, I mean, I uh, since you mentioned WHO, um, so it gives me an opportunity to discuss the six principles that WHO has come up with very recently last year on AI works for public health. You know, so they actually come up with six principles that uh, we need to be mindful of while applying the AI for population health. So uh, it's not just my personal thought; it's it's WHO's uh, position on that too. So the first principle is the protecting the human autonomy. That is, the decision still needs to come from the, from the doctors or the, the, or the human. It should not be in the hands of the technology. Technology is a helping hand. It's, an, it's something that assists you, helps you, but humans remain uh, in the control. And the people on whom uh, these technologies are being applied, they should have the autonomy to make an informed decision. So this is the first Principle. And secondly, they're saying that the promoting the human well-being and safety and the public interest should be the most important consideration. We have examples of many uh, such research or different clinical work practiced by the Nazis on the people in the name of science. We have those examples, right? So those should not happen. Uh, those should not repeat. And the population's well-being uh, should and not science only, not science for the sake of science. Science should be always for the sake of promoting human well-being. So that's the second principle. Third is that ensuring transparency, explainability, and intelligibility. How you are uh, reaching those uh, decisions, how you are applying these AI-based technologies, 
how you de design that, how are you applying that, what are the consequences of that, those should be clearly explained and intelligible to the people on whom they're being applied. So that transparency is important. Then we have the fostering responsibility and accountability, who we will um, hold accountable for something that, that happens. So for example, if you apply an AI-based radiological diagnosis, but it was wrong and something bad happened to the patient, then who the patient will turn into? Should he go to the, uh, the patient who diagnosed using the AI? Should he go to the company who, which developed that technology or who designed it? So those things should be sorted out and there should be an accountability and responsibility mechanism uh, in applying the AI and ensuring inclusiveness and equity. So the people who do not have the economic strength to use the technology, they should not be uh, left out. It should not, it should be inclusive, right? The technology that is useful, that should be, something is good, should be applicable to all. You cannot just take advantage of it and become more and more healthy at the cost of the people who are um, who cannot afford that just because they're poor. So it should be, you must have a policy that will be inclusive, that will mend the digital divide and bring more and more people under uh, the coverage of something which is beneficial. Something beneficial cannot be limited to the wealthy few. And finally, promoting AI that is responsive and sustainable. It should be sustainable. It should be res uh, responsive to the growing population need. It should be evidence-based. It should actually address the growing challenges of the people. So these are the six principles that WHO thinks we should be mindful of while designing, developing, or applying digital technologies or AI-based technologies on Iran. Yeah, that's a great summary of how World Health Organization is thinking about this really AI-based technology and the translation that we are talking about. So I guess one of the things that was quite interesting for me is basically the idea of inclusiveness and equity. I guess that's one of the things that of all people, if you are in public health, that's the first thing that you learn, right? That you don't treat people differently because of whatever their social background, their economic background, etc. So, and then there came a pandemic and I guess things looked quite bleak from that perspective. So do you think it's possible that the technology might actually, I don't know, somehow solve this conundrum or it will actually make things worse by making things even more difficult for those who are already depriving things, at least in the Bangladesh context? So this is actually a very interesting debate, you know, I mean, uh, and by debate, I mean the school level debate when we used to do debate when we were school kids. We had this type of uh, discussion and topics a lot, whether technology uh, is a boon or is actually a bane. I mean, it's a bad thing or a good thing. But, you know, technology is just like any other thing. You, it's just a tool. It depends on how you use it. We used to give this example that if a robber gets hold of a knife, uh, he may kill with that. But if a surgeon gets hold of it, he will cure a patient. So it's not technology that uh, itself will solve the problem or create problems. This is us as human beings who decide how to use that technology. Should we use this technology for the betterment of the people? Or should we increase the uh, population inequity? Should we be inclusive with these technologies? Should we prepare a policy that are good for the people? Or should we use it for our own narrow benefits only? So... I wouldn't say it's, it's going to solve or not solve, but it depends. It's a good tool 
that we can take advantage of and the decision is ours whether we will take that take advantage of that or not yeah that's very well said especially from a public perspective i guess this is really a big decision making question that where really the policy makers need to think about it which part of the technology they need to employ and how they actually going to employ it so that it maximizes the benefit minimizes the harm etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah really this is i i guess a big topic that that probably is part of the debate of how ai can come into healthcare i'm really happy that you are involved in world health organization and bringing some of these insights into how the organization is developing its its i guess post covid strategies since we are almost at the end of the uh, uh, discussion and really was insightful so maybe if you can give us a sort of your thoughts of the coming i don't know decade of public health in bangladesh and how uh, digital technology can interact with the society with the uh, societal health can you give us some insights of how you see it coming forward in the future uh, i am very much optimistic people of bangladesh are very um, open to new technologies and what should i say like a very good example is the uh, is the vaccines even in the very uh, developed countries they have anti vaxxer groups while in bangladesh 98% of the people children are basically vaccinated and they love vaccines they are very open to technology you look another example the family planning example so it's a muslim majority country with a lot of imams and very religious leaders and when we started the family planning people said that it will be extremely difficult to implement that in bangladesh because the religious leaders will oppose to it but it didn't happen bangladesh is actually a role model of family planning uh, i mean just few decades ago when the total fertility rate was 6 or 7 now it's around 2 that is we have achieved a replacement level fertility so the people are very open to new technologies but you need to earn their trust you know technologies uh, i mean i'm very optimistic people are interested enthusiastic uh, they want to improve their lives so i am very much optimistic about the future of technology in bangladesh having said that i think we need to do more research context specific research to understand the perception of the people their needs instead of imposing something from above we need to actually make the technology something that grows up like a tree from the ground you know it should be informed by the choices of the people it should be informed by the priorities of the people uh instead of something that's kind of shoved up on them from abroad so contextually driven uh research implementation research this type of things should happen so qualitative research social research anthropological research they have importance or a place in the discussion of digital technology i think and if we can actually pull all these things together um then uh, we hold a good future very bright future Absolutely so I guess I wish you all the best for the sleepless nights that will come to you while you think about all these questions and do the actual research because I know for sure implementation in healthcare is probably one of the biggest bottleneck and that too while uh, doing it in not the let's say the global north in terms of economies even more challenging but i guess at the same time it's also very rewarding you have been doing it for some years and i'm sure you the, the entire 
community can benefit from the wonderful work that you are doing, Taufik. On that note, thank you so much for being here, for sharing with us your thoughts about making AI-ready healthcare for Bangladesh. And I wish you all the best. Thank you, Anirban. It was actually a pleasure and I really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope our audience finds it useful. Thank you.